It's Friday, May 15th, 2020, and you're listening to episode 545 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 47 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Wade. I'm Laura. This is Brodor. So, Laura, what are you running at Fear the Con line? Way to like drop that question on me. That's um, right. It's an excellent <laughs> question, though. That's a dick move. <laughs> um, I will probably still. I So here's the thing. I would like to still run a game. Probably. Wow. Don't be too committal. <laughs> I, well, here's the thing. So the whole point was Adam Gottfried, my boyfriend, mm-hmm. the blind GM. Yes. Almighty bear. Almighty Bear um, was coming he's down. He's so adorable. Um, this is a negative episode. Never mind. <laughs> he was coming he down nice for. He does. He was coming down for Fear the Con, and then we were going to drive back up, and I was going to be staying up in Minnesota for about a month because my kids are going to be with their dad. And now that Fear the Con is online, he's not coming down. I may be traveling that weekend. Or I may have already gone up there. So I'm not entirely positive. My intent is to still run a game. I will probably still run the game that I was planning to. Um, I haven't moved it over to the con planner yet for the online con. Quick context for anyone that doesn't know, since Fear the Con, we're not able to run it this year. We're running an online convention. Zylo ran last year when we weren't able to run a convention last year. He ran Fear the Con Line. So this is Fear the Con Line 2, going the social distance. Yeah. I love it's it. It's on the same weekend that the originally Fear the Con was going to be, June 19th and 20th. And I know I'm going to run something. I don't know what I'm running, though, because I have never run an online game. Well, as a note about organization stuff here, I'll put a link to the Con Planner site and the show notes. Obviously, this is a free convention. Mm-hmm. Because it's online, you have to work with your GMs to figure out where they're going to be running the game and all. Right, and that's there is part specific of it. details around that on the Con Planner website and on the video about it. Mm-hmm. We are asking that every GM that posts something actually put in what the requirements are, yeah. what they're running. Do they expect video? Are they running on a virtual tabletop? There's going to be organization and channels for every game in the Discord. And since it's not coordinate. local, mm-hmm. I think we also have some sort of off-the-normal-beaten-path time slots. We do. So Specifically if, catering to, we've got a lot of Australians. Yeah, so if you're... Because the goddamn Australians are the best. They so are. I yeah, they love are. Australians. Thanks, so I pack. gave them their own slot that was, I don't remember what it was, but specifically it's slot whatever, because FTB loves our Australians. That nice. is what it is listed as on Con Planner. I dig it. How early in the morning is it? It's For probably... us, it's like 3 or 4 a.m. Yeah. Uh... yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to be playing in that slot. But it's there for them. And there's a game be, already in it. I wonder if I could be awake enough to run a game at that time. I probably could. Being a completely untreatable insomniac, I'm sure <laughs> I'll be wide awake at the time. But, but yeah, I, I plan on running some one-shots in the next few weeks because I have never run an online game. Mm-hmm. And I don't want my first online game to be running a game at a convention. Because right. those people are... I expect more of myself running a game at a convention than I do just a regular game. That's fair. That's And fair. so I want to try that out a few times. I'm actually nervous about it. I have no problem sitting down at a table and running a game. Mm-hmm. 
But I'm the type of person that when I'm running a game, my eyes are looking around the table. Right. I'm watching everyone's face. Yeah, I'm seeing the reactions. Into, I'm yeah. getting energy off of those people. Mm-hmm. And I don't have that with an online game. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you do that? Yeah. So I'm a little online. bit nervous about that. That's well, why I was curious I'll totally if you were going to you. run one. So, and, and those are very much my own concerns as well. I am great at reading people in person. I'm less great at reading people when I'm trying to see your face and five other faces on a screen and look at my notes. And God forbid, if I'm also using some sort of virtual, like I have zero experience using like Roll20 or any of the virtual tabletops. So that instantly means that I'm already on edge because I'm not used to using this. I don't use real miniatures. Uh, I don't need a virtual tabletop. Right. Fortunately, I started running a campaign for some coworkers of mine uh, about a month or so ago. And because of the pandemic, we're now doing all of those sessions via Zoom. So I'm getting a little bit of, I guess, experience, it's experience. handling that over the Internet. Um, and I'm playing in a lot of, of games because of my friends in Minnesota. But running a con game, I don't know these people. And I don't want them to feel like it's a waste of their time. You're right. Yep. Wayne, I recant. I cannot run my Kickstarter game because I've never run an online game. I hate online gaming. Um, oh, actually, I, well, you got connection issues. I, but also the core mechanic of the You Tell Me system is the consumption of whiskey, Jack Daniels specifically. I won't have a glass to pour. I won't have a bottle to pour into people's okay. shot glasses. I don't think I can run my game remotely. No, you'll have to figure out another game that you want to run if you're going to run one. Yeah, I mean, I definitely am going to run something, but I don't think I can run my system online. I think I've lied to you. I think I'm going to let some people down. So if you're on the Kickstarter, something to be watching for is we're going to be getting a poll out there pretty soon to ask with your game, how do you want it handled? If you backed at a level that gets you into a game, do you want it to be run online this year? Do you want it to be held and instead played in person at Fear of the Con 2021? Or are you open to either? And we're going to look at that and once again do our absolute best to... Yeah, there's no wrong answer. We want everyone to be happy. I mean, we... I felt really bad having to cancel, even though we had yeah. to cancel. There's no reason we could run it this yeah, year. Yeah, legally we logistically. But I still felt bad about that. And I want to make sure that everyone that has given us money gets satisfaction. We want you to have as positive of an experience as possible, yeah. given all of the bullshit that's going on right now. Well, if one of my backers wants to host, I'll come to you. <laughs> I'll drive to, to Australia. No. <laughs> no. How long can you hold your breath? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I hate flying and I pee a lot. So, yeah, there's no way. <laughs> you know what? I can vouch for that last part because <laughs> we had to drive back then. from Reno because our flight got canceled. But flying down Reno, we flew with St. Louis to was Denver. It was St. Louis to Denver. And then Denver, Denver to Reno. Yeah. And, yeah, I will say Brodor had to pee an awful. F- I mean, he was like a pregnant woman. <laughs> It was pretty bad. I'm telling you, that's, that's why impressive. I need that prostate milker because it's pushing on my bladder, man. Yeah. I need help. Oh, okay. So once again, please be sure to check the show notes for links to Fear the Con online and the promo video, the Con Planner site. And also, if you did back on Kickstarter, still please keep watching that as we try to sort through the aftermath of what has happened to the original intentions for Fear of the Con. So I did want to say we have locked in the dates for Fear of the Con 2021. Hooray! Yo, good. Same place, back at the Drury exact in Exact same Brentwood. place. 
Uh, it is the last weekend of June, which I should have the dates looked up, but I don't right now. So uh, I can pull that off. Oh, wait, so. that's the level of professionalism we've come to expect from the soulless. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I wanted to put that out there that I do have the date locked in. Okay. We have our contract and Fear the Con 2021. Would be night on the 24th. And then the days for the games would be Friday the 25th. Saturday the 26th, if that's what you're looking for. Yep. Okay, so that'd be the 24th, 25th, and 26th of June 2021 will be the next Fear of the Con. And once again, we are forwarding every single penny that was raised for Fear of the Con 2020 into that convention. So as far as we know, once again, barring some weird shift in the economy, uh, the con is fully paid for. So it's just going to be a show up and have a good time. There's not going to be a Kickstarter for it because you guys didn't raise enough money to be worth ripping off and disappearing. So we'll just go ahead. <laughs> so we'll just go ahead and do the con. <laughs> Some shade. Wow. I mean, if you'd given us like 120 grand, I might be tempted, but you know. Well, I mean, we could always do a, like a little something because there were some stretch goals that we didn't hit. Yo, yeah. the, okay. I mean, uh, if we do, yeah, that's all we'll look at is well, maybe some. And we've released a game product to our backers <laughs> on Patreon. <laughs> yeah, that too. So <laughs> I love Bruder Space right now. <laughs> yeah, there's some shaping thrown in the, in the studio. I know, man. It's like a fight in a lamp store. <laughs> Show oh, up. my God. Uh, so, oh. Uh, all right. So topic today came from a question raised on Facebook by Jesse Serkey. I'm guessing on the last name pronunciation, which is why I handed Dan a sheet I, of paper I, that had I, the I, name because I don't want to try to pronounce it. I could be mistaken, but I believe that I'm correct because there's the thing you can do on Facebook. And you can look mm. at a phonetic pronunciation. And people just put in their I, I did that on mine. I actually put my pronunciation with too. my name because yeah. its guess was completely wrong. Mm. So I, I too. So, and I think that pronunciation is correct. But I also I'm a middle aged pothead, so it's very likely that I don't remember correctly. Okay, you, are you actually middle aged? Because I'm like, forty five, baby. Okay, barely middle aged. Because forty five, I did not know. I thought I was I look mid- good for my age, man. I thought middle aged start younger, but actually, the middle aged live in no kid. Yeah. Middle age depends on how long you're actually going to live. So. Yeah, it's true. Well, I'm a brodor, so it is. I mean, uh, you are correct. It is it, Jesse Serkey. Okay, yeah, if well, I hundred percent just looked it up on Facebook, you know, early nineties. Yeah. Well, I believe demographically that is who lives the longest is the married with no children. I've got three. You want some? <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't have them on purpose. Fine. <laughs> so the topic that Jesse raised was not children, marriage, or voters' <laughs> lifespan. True. Nor the beginning of middle age, which I was surprised to learn is actually 45. I thought it was younger than that. But it was instead a question about henchmen and role-playing games. And before we even introduce the topic... There is an avenue of conversation that I'm going to shut down, at least as being out of scope of what we're covering on the show. Now, obviously, what you guys want to suggest in the comments or recommendations you have or experiences you want to share, whatever is fair game. But I'm just saying we cannot reasonably cover this particular angle on the show, which is I recognize some products already do a good job of handling this. Or have their own rule set for doing it. We are not talking about game mechanics relating to m- minions or right, things right. Like which that. is what we're talking about. It's right. going to be about minions and henchmen and followers and such. So if your answer to this is, you know what? If you look in such and such a book for such and such a game, they have the best rules ever. That may be true, and I'm not saying you can't come on our forums and suggest that. 
we'd love to hear those kinds of comments. I'm just explaining why we're not going to talk about it on the show because we try to keep the system agnostic. So we're not going to attempt to solve everybody's problems with Savage Worlds. With that said, Jesse's question was, and I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have the Facebook post in front of me, but the paraphrasing of it was basically, how do you handle large numbers particularly? Or at least that's the angle I want to chase. Do you want me to read it? Okay, yeah, go ahead, Laura. Go and read the post. Uh, Show topic suggestion. Players using henchmen, hirelings, red shirts, entourage, etc., party NPCs in your game. Is it generally a good idea? How does it help or hurt players, judges, GMs, DMs, etc.? Best ways to handle opportunities for party dialogue and role play by the GM. How many are too many? And what is the effect on morale? So, yeah, there's a lot there I want to unpack, and I don't know we're going to be able to unpack all of it, but let's at least pick some of the big points there. One of the first ones I want to start with is how many is too many? Because it is a rough thing to do when somebody comes to me and says they want to have a substantial number of hirelings. I don't, as the GM, want to try and role play out another 50 people or 25 Mm -hmm. people or 12 people or quite frankly, even half a dozen other people. I mean, depending on the game, sometimes combats or resolutions take a while as it is, Mm -hmm. and having that many additional people in the initiative round, that makes things that much more difficult. Having that many people in the role play, well, we don't have this skill, but we've hired 25 different knights that are with us. Surely one of them knows how to sail. The other thing you run into is the potential for that person with all their hirelings now can do everything. And why do they even need a party? Why do they need a party? Why does the party need the party? I mean, I had a Battletech game shut down. This was years back, back when I was still being regularly abused by my players, where they at one point realized that they had hired enough people that they didn't need to do anything. And they ended the campaign. And I'm like... What? Because they're like, we've hired people that, you know, we've spec ops infantry that can do this. And we've hired other mech warriors. We've hired this and hired that. Basically says, we don't see any reason to go out anymore and risk our own assets and lives. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We actually had that in the last gaming. We had that in the last Battletech game that we had. We didn't reach that point, but we were asked. Because you guys weren't total assholes. Right. We were out of character having the conversation (laughs) of. Why would we bring our mechs on the field when this mission would obviously be better done by our Marines that we have hired for yeah. us? But we as players want to bring our mechs on the field because that's what's fun. Precisely. And we had that conversation of outside of, you know, out of character of what is our logical reason for actually continuing well, to do this? Because if, we're going to take our robots out. And if you want to do an empire building game, that's cool. But we're assuming for the context of this conversation, that's not the point. Mm-hmm. That you're not trying to hit a campaign where you eventually make yourself obsolete, where you have a kingdom and you have an army and you yourself never fight dragons anymore. Yeah, one of the examples I always go to is Epoch of Rysos game where Chad has robots. And every time we wanted to do something, the question came, why would we do that when his robots can do it with no risk and they're going to do it better? Yeah. Yeah. And it became something that had to be dealt with out of character because... The entire game became around his robots. Right. And so, that's not fun for anybody else. My brother ran for a long time a paranormal World War II game. And we were in, I mean, it was a military structure, right? 
So we had a lot of people that were NPCs that were above us in rank. Mm -hmm. But then we also had a good number of people that were below us in rank that would serve in the various theater or the adventure that we were on. And one of the guys in the party, now, again, I won't get into the mechanics, but mechanically he had leadership stuff that made him, you know, made him a good leader. But just in character, as the person who was in command, he managed an Excel sheet roster of all the NPCs that were in the platoon that were important to us to manage, and then sort of, you know, what their MOS or their role in the group was, and then sort of just some personality quirks or injuries, or this guy got KIA'd, but someone in the party had to take the responsibility to manage all that mm. stuff off the DMs. That's, yep. that's one a great yeah, suggestion a- is yeah. Push it back to the player who did it. Mm-hmm. That if they want to have a party of hirelings, it is up to them to as much as they want, write up the stats, work out the names, work out the personalities and use the game master, get to review it and you get to use it where applicable but you say, look, 90 some odd percent of the time, this is your problem. So yeah, it, where it, it, I saw that work really well was a Blades in the Dark game that Chad ran. And as that started to happen, his wife Dawn had a gang that was hers and she wrote them up. And then I had a whorehouse and I wrote up <laughs> all of the staff there, too. And in both cases, the rest of the party, the rest of the players didn't really care about our characters. They were something they're. I mean, our NPCs, they were something they're mechanically doing things for both of us. We were the ones that cared about them. We wrote them all up. Yeah. We gave Chad the Cliff Notes version of those characters. Here's their names. Here's the quirk about them. Here's what they care about. And if he wanted to use it, he had that as a resource. If he didn't want to use it, that was cool because we've got that going on in our heads. Yeah. And we were happy about it. Narl's no plan. Same way. I ran every one of those Knolls. And the only thing that I pulled chad into was i made sure he was okay with their stats they were all lower powered than the rest of the party was which was something i did to i as a player did to keep the party from becoming obsolete there was no noel individually that was any more powerful than any character they were all less powerful Mm -hmm. like i think we were about level four or five at the time they were all level two or three and they stayed generally in the background when they came out i managed them i handled them and usually, at most, there was maybe one or two of them with me. Usually none. But at most, maybe one or two of them with me. And so they were never this crushing presence. And I think it also helped that there were so few players in that game. It was just me, Wayne, and Pat at first. I mean, later we had on some people. But for most, it was just me, Wayne, and Pat with Chad GMing. And so it wasn't like adding on two or three null NPCs suddenly just turned the party into this unmanageable size. You right. know, we... We were not at that point of breaking the camel's back. You know, one of the things I think could go wrong with it, because I've seen it happen, is some players just have the tendency of, this may be an NPC, but they're just a resource I'm going to throw out there. And I see this, there's the same type of player that will have a familiar that they'll immediately send out into danger and don't care if it gets killed or anything like that. And as a GM, I want there to be consequences of, you tell private red shirt that you want him to run through the laser field where everybody's shooting. I want private red shirt to look back up at you and say, are you f-ing insane? <laughs> right. I don't have the skill for this. Yeah. I'm going to die. Or even a mutiny. 
Yeah, and I want that to be on the table. I don't want them to just be abused after abused after abused. Yeah. And not every player does that, but some players do well, that. Well, and one of the things that I found kind of helps is if I, as the game master, view a group of NPCs, hirelings, henchmen, whatever they are, as if they were a single character, or at least as if one character is sufficient to archetypally represent the rest. Let me give you some examples. In the Skies of Glass game, you guys had a crew on your boat of six people. There was only one of them that had a name, and whenever you interacted with the crew, it was him you talked to. I don't think I ever even named the other five members of the crew. Yeah, they were also backup characters for all of us in case we needed them. And, well, they're backup characters. But on top of that, they stuck to pretty much one function. They did one thing. They ran that boat. They only talked to you through one person. If I ever had to make a check, I generalized it off of one character's stats. Something similar in Battletech. When you guys go out and use the rules that are provided to hire within your mercenary corps a platoon or two of elite infantrymen, usually I will only name one or two of them. And here's a commanding officer and maybe an executive officer that you talk to. But outside of that, the rest of them are basically undefined and they are treated as a singular entity. If they're rolling initiative, they all go on the same turn. If they're rolling to do something, I just sort of give them a single target role that is assumed to represent the best or worst that this group can offer. But I also use this when handling them from a role-playing standpoint in that if you are abusive towards them, if you mistreat them, what I'm going to say is, okay, let's pretend for a moment that this group of henchmen was one character. Because in a way, they do represent one character because they are a demographic. Why do the Joker's henchmen hang around the Joker? It's the quote from Dark Knight. What kind of people do you think he attracts? It's that sort of question. And so you are answering that in the form of an archetype that puts you within the right ballpark of the sort of person that's going to be his henchman. And if the Joker starts doing things that go against the grain of what brought them in in the first place, then they're going to start raising questions. They might refuse his orders. They might mutiny against him. They might switch sides and stab him in the back. There's all kinds of things that can happen. Now, of course, in the case of the Joker, it may be the other way around that he rules them through fear, that he has to keep killing off one or two of them so the rest of them believe he's fully unpredictable and crazy. And that's part of his mechanic, and that's just how he works in that situation. But in the case of, like, the Battletech game, if you regularly send your infantry into these suicide situations and you're not cutting them a good chunk of the contract fee that you're willing to give up to bonus them, and you treat them like crap on the ship, and you're abusive and insulting to them, and you send them on suicide missions, well, best case scenario, next planet you land on, they're simply going to quit. Worst case scenario, mid-battle, they switch sides. Yeah, There's also something to consider there, and you've hit on a couple times. You can only manage a certain number of people. There are studies and all this that say that the optimal amount of a team size is about five to six people for one direct report. So when you're having these minions and things like that, they're going to probably have somebody that's in charge. Yeah. In the Skies of Glass game, it was Alejandro on the boat. He was the one we went to because he was the one that was in charge of all the others. Same thing can be said of any group that you're working with. Let's say you're running a Star Trek game and you're the bridge crew. 
you're not going to be talking to every engineer that's down in engineering. You're going to be talking to the chief engineer. Yeah. Right. To sort of harken back to what you had said earlier, Wayne, it does provide an expendable resource. And I don't want to use the word disposable. It provides an expendable resource for the party in its significant logistically and for support but the bridge crew's still making decisions. The thing that would cheese me off about the Battletech game is that you were talking about earlier that ended is, you know, you motherfuckers, I built this whole structure for you. You have these things at your disposal so that you can go out and do the big picture stuff and the big mm-hmm. adventures and slay dragons and do shit and not worry about defending the city's walls against the, you know, the goblin assault, right? You go kill dragons, just go kill dragons, yeah. right? Well, yeah. and there's a p- great character moment in there, too, of whoever you have in charge, you have to convince him to take that order back to the other guys. Right. We have to save the city, and that means we need a group of soldiers that are going to go out, yeah. and they are probably not going to come back. You then have to have that conversation in character with that lead NPC mm-hmm. to convince him. Because if you convince him, then it's his job to go convince right. everyone else. But yeah. as the game master, though, there's a line. The PCs can't look at that resource as a, well, then we'll just, you know, dot, sure. dot, dot. And right. oh, well, then we'll just have so-and-so do it. Or we'll just do this. Or we'll just do that. Yeah, well, and then it's unfun. Because once again, you've stopped seeing them as characters or even seeing the group of them mm-hmm. as a single collective character that has its own motivations to be there, its own motivations to stay there, its own reasons to be loyal or not. On the it, other hand, I also don't want to play office politics, the role-playing game. No, I don't. I, I, <laughs> well, within certain games, I guess that makes sense. But I, I would think, generally speaking, that's not what people are looking for. But, you know, something along these lines that I've seen, I mentioned the Joker, but something along these lines I've seen where this has come up is in especially superhero and supervillain games. You know, let's say we were running, doesn't matter, either superhero or supervillain game, and there's a group of superheroes, and I want to play one who has a bunch of henchmen under him. The Joker himself is not that powerful. Depending on the take on him, it's implied he does have slightly above human strength and sludge. Just comes it, with insanity. Yeah, it's just, he's kind of, yeah, he's, he's yeah. literally, quote-unquote, crazy strong, or he doesn't get bothered by pain and such. But he's not going to punch it out with Superman. You know, he does a lot of what he does through networks of criminal contacts and henchmen and so on and so forth. It would be really hard to tell a compelling story about the Joker alongside someone like Lobo if you took away his henchmen. And so they need to be there. But I don't think that has to devolve, like you said, into a story about the politics of that, because you understand at the broad level what has them on board. Another example is on the Marvel side, Kingpin. Kingpin himself is big, he's tough. But Kingpin's real power is that he's in charge of all of the organized crime. Mm-hmm. You couldn't tell a really good Kingpin story in a role-playing game without having that organization there at his disposal. For a lot of game masters, myself included, that's going to be a wicked unique challenge, right? That's something really complex to tackle because I want your network to be important to the game. I want you to have the I want you to have your your henchmen. I want you to have your fun, but it also has to be balanced against I can't have the tough character be so tough that there's no weapon that will hurt him that won't annihilate the rest of the party, mm-hmm. right? 
if Laura's got a bunch of henchmen, I can't have her organization be so powerful that it offsets and neuters the importance of the rest of the characters, yeah. which is what you were alluding to. Now, this one person, now she does everything right. because of her network. You because of that. my awesomeness. Yeah. <laughs> I think it comes down to... I mean, I and I harp on this a lot, but knowing knowing your players and knowing the group that you play with and how is somebody going to play that? Are they going to be a dick? Try to essentially let that group of people take over or do all of the things. Are you using it as a replacement for your character or are you using it to make things more interesting and to augment the role playing of the group? If you're using it as a replacement, you're a dick. Don't do it. Yeah, and if you look at different types of players, someone like myself or like Don is the other example I've given, we're going to write up all of those people that report to us, yeah. and we're going to give them personalities and history, yeah. and some of that are going to be, what is their opinion of me? And it's not always going to be positive. We're going to write in things that aren't helpful to us, mm-hmm. yeah. because that's what makes it more interesting. Mm-hmm. But somebody that looks at them as, I've got this line on my sheet that is a resource, isn't going to do that. I yeah. a disposable resource. I think something you could do in any game. I mean, this is a pretty generic concept. The same way that I look at real life social interactions, which is every time you interact with someone, think of it kind of like a checkbook or a ledger. Every interaction you have with someone is either putting money in or taking money out. All right. So if I hang out with Wayne and he and I have a positive time and we connect on some good issues, and we talk about some good mm-hmm. things then Wayne's overall opinion of me, his friendship with me, his loyalty towards me, and vice versa, goes up into the pot. So maybe not a lot. Maybe it's five cents into the bank. Whereas if he's dying and I donate a kidney, it's a hundred bucks in the bank, right? (laughs) But the point is that you have these interactions. But similarly, if I I show up with a pizza with pineapple on it. Yeah, and so by this point now, like negative twenty five thousand, and Wayne's yes. dead on my doorstep. You know, Buffy. Buffy Agreed. eats pineapple on her pizza, so I contend that this is okay. But I think that's a, something you can keep track of, even in the abstract. In any game, is just keep a running tab because I think you do run the risk that players could start bitching if all of a sudden their NPCs turn on them or refuse yeah. to do something. They're going to be arguing with you. Well, why would they do this? I'm paying them, and I'm this. It's like, no, you've been a dick to them. And I say this goes mm-hmm. back to your the last episode when we we're talking about GM insecurity, yeah, and about how you write in your explanations on why things happen, yeah, mm-hmm. that I don't do, but I already see it. Your <laughs> example here is doing exactly that. You're making that tally in the yeah, background. It's like so okay, if they question, you're like, oh nope, here you go, yeah, here it's you go, paper, here's the receipts. You were ignorant to that guy minus ten cents. You got a full squad of his killed on something he told you not to do minus a buck. Right. You know, mm-hmm. then when he came back and complained you punched him and knocked him unconscious minus 50 cents it's like you know you realize by where we're at now we are so deep in the red and when it came time to pay out the bills you decided that you were going to cut corners but not paying them their full salary and now you're wondering why suddenly your mechs have satchel charges stuffed into the foot yeah <laughs> and i've got your explanation right here <laughs> because the other side offered them money and respect and, so, and you were a dick. And you were a dick to them. It's great if you want to use them to charge ahead of you to set off the traps in the dungeon, but you better have some really compelling reasons if you want to keep them doing that and not instead selling you out to the town guard or to the evil wizard or whatever at the next opportunity. Why aren't there more evil hench person rebellions? 
I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, there really, there really should be. I mean, if if I'm the kind of villain and I have an advantage, I really treat these people like garbage and I throw them away. I feel like at some point people stop answering my personal ads. They stop henching for me. <laughs> desperate people do desperate things. Well, I mean, I've seen it addressed in different settings. Some answers are fear. Mm-hmm. You don't want to cross the person. The person says you're working for them, and now you're working for them. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not working for them, you're dead. Right. So or that's one way to address it. there's fanaticism. Yes. There's the Rachel Ghoul yeah. League of Shadows sort yep. of, we yeah. have faith. Yep. And then there are, for one of the DC examples, there's just this pool of henchmen that will go with whatever of the big name there is because they get more money doing that. And they just want to be on the winning team. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't... <laughs> yeah, they don't... It's, it's okay. I mean, I know it's 2020, but it's just it's still okay to shit on Italians, right? Am I, am I wrong? <laughs> I don't know. No, it's not okay to shit on Italians. <laughs> what about Mussolini? Can I shit on Mussolini? Yes. You can shit on Mussolini. Okay. But only yeah. on his chest. Yeah. And Italy did flip sides between World War One or World War Two a few ways around. But yes. But like those minions... They don't want to wear two colored suits. They don't want to wear question marks. What they want is the payday. Yeah. And if they do a job or two, mm-hmm. they've got the money. And then when, you know, when they come down, it's not the minions they usually come down on. When they come down, they're aimed at the they're boss. They're aimed at the big guy. And then you run out the door and go sign on with the next guy. Right. And that's, a, that's yeah. an interesting point. So then we could run a game where we're all low-level henches. It's like having temp work. We just run <laughs> with one villain until they get busted, and then we just move to the next villain. I feel yeah. like you just found your Fear the Con line. I, fe- I think that would be a fun, flipping game to play. <laughs> right? That we're all just, ah, shit, this guy's got it. Well, all right. Well, I remember I used to work for so-and-so. Like, you all have great contacts and connections because you've all worked with so many different people well, in the someone- industry years ago uh, used to run at uh at one of the fear of the cons the game where your stormtroopers on the death star but you're like the plumbers and you're right. yeah <laughs> yeah, you know, it was bob Arons. yeah you used to run like the i think it was bob Arons. you'd play like janitors on the death star yeah, yeah you were nobody i played a character who he let me play a guy whose last name by pure coincidence was palpatine <laughs> he was in no way related to the Palpatine, but he just got where he was and like got this really nice, high-paying, bureaucratic job where he did nothing and made fat bank because everyone was terrified that he was related. But he, it's, he was just like Bob Palpatine. No relationship whatsoever. Uh, normally I hate That's stupid great. names in games, but to have a normal name in Star Wars tickles me. <laughs> well, this was a comedy game. Yeah, Bob, I mean, yeah. Bob Palpatine. Yeah. This was a, it was a comedy game. I mean, it wasn't like a serious game, Buddy's obviously. Buddy's called me Big Pal. <laughs> I, I like the idea of playing minions, and I don't know that I would want to do it as a long-term campaign, right. unless the goal was you start the campaign as minions, and then as you level, you eventually overtake your masters you guys strike out on your own i think that'd be fun sort of a low level shadow run man we are nobodies to becoming somebody you want interesting exercise in this read either of the accounts of the mutiny on the bounty Mm. Mm. you know i mean you it's a lot of people but you only get a handful of names and Mm. both the parties that were loyal to the captain the parties that were loyalty to his first officer his first mate you know they're generally described in pretty broad 
social movement terms. You know, mm-hmm. this was the mood amongst that group of people. Yeah. You don't typically get a blow by blow of the entire roster of however many people were on that boat. Right. Well, and then mm-hmm. Perkins thought this and Clark thought that and da da da. Yeah. Yeah. And so you don't get that. You just see these kind of abstract things. You know, and let's go back to like Battletech or Star Trek works for this as well. It may be necessary to do more than one. If you have enough of these people, you may want to start going for figureheads or department heads that, for example, within Battletech, I'll name the guy or the woman or whatever who heads up the infantry and I'll also name the person who does your business affairs. And I'll also name the person that is the captain of the dropship. You know who Dan will always name? And I do the same thing. Whoever cooks the food. Yeah, the kitchen. It doesn't matter that their role is not going to be on the field or anything. I will always name the the cook and the chef. They're the heart of the ship. Always and there will the always be role play with that character. Oh, yeah. Yeah. and But it's still an abstraction where I'm still abstracting what maybe dozens or even hundreds of people, all with their own contacts and stories and whatever, down to a small number of people. And I think that's a good way to handle them in the rules as well. You know, okay. Did all any of us spot something? Well, all right, fine. Everybody at the table gets rolled. Now, what about our infantry? Did they spot it? Well, maybe I'll give them two or three rolls, but I'm not going to roll for all 28 people in the platoon. No, right. like if you're, and again, I mean, it's not, I'm going to want to bring this into a system, but just as an example, you can give them, I am going to roll for the group. I'm going to roll one roll, but I'm going to give them a big bonus like advantage or right. plus X because, because there's yeah, because there's so many of yeah. them. It it significantly increases the likelihood of right. success. Yeah, or they're well trained in this. Or yeah, them. like oh yeah, well, these are my oh you so you've got the rangers out there. Well, there's three four person squads yeah. of rangers. I'm just going to roll one for them, but they're going to get this bonus because well, that's part of their there's, skill set. And then we have the janitors that you've underpaid. They haven't seen daylight in five years. Right. Not only they're that, doing disadvantage. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but I think there's another question that I would ask that comes before any of this, which is why if I'm at a game table and let's say I have the a good size group, three to five players, you know, whatever. And one of them's like, you know what? I don't want just an understudy or a hireling. You know, I want to go into the next town, take my sack of gold and I want to hire a 100 cavalrymen. If you're like, all right, why? Why? You know, yeah. what, what is the purpose of this group in the story? Why do they need to be in your group? How do you expect me to manage this in the game? And the answer to this may simply be no, that they're not there to hire, or even if they are, look, I'm just telling you, GM to player, the answer is no. I'm not going to allow you to do this because if you cannot give me a compelling reason why they're there at all. Now, if it's something like your group is tasked with trying to save a town from a goblin invasion, Mm -hmm. and you go to the nearest major city, and you hire a group of mercenaries, and you come back with 100 cavalrymen and 100 skirmishers and 400 footmen, because you actually had the gold from the dragon horde to do that, okay, well, we're dealing with a city siege here. Mm -hmm. I can describe them in those terms. I understand why they're here. Narl trying to rebuild his clan if you're trying to play a supervillains game, Lex Luthor needing his corporation that's under him, plus his field operatives, I get their role. Yeah. One of the things you need to ask, too, is how do they take orders? Let's say we're player characters. We're playing a mercenary group. We're hired for a job. It's up to us to figure out how to do it. But if it's a player character that's hiring a group of mercenaries, they just expect to tell them what to do and they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. No, if I'm the GM on that, you know that leader of that mercenary group is going to be like, Look, you're hiring us for a reason. We have experience. 
here's what we're going to be doing. Right. They're not going to be that. Yeah. Think of like any other job. Yeah. If you go into a job, many things determine your level of obedience and loyalty. The attitude you had when you started the job, mm-hmm. the way your manager treats you, how much you're getting paid, what you thought you were signing up for versus what the job actually is. How easily can you get a different job? Mm -hmm. Is anyone actively trying to poach you, like to try to get you to leave for a better offer or something like that? And so all of these things figure into your loyalty and your cooperativeness with a job. You know, if you're being asked to flip burgers for minimum wage, then you're not real likely to go out into the parking lot And to break up a small riot between 30 people, if your boss treats you like crap anyway, and I mean, you're at some point, you're just going to throw in the apron and walk out the door. I mean, you're not going to put up with this crap. And whereas if somebody's paying you a quarter million a year for security, and that's what you were hired to do, and you knew that's what the job was, that's what you're equipped for, it's what you're paid for, you've got hazard bonuses on top of that, et cetera, et cetera. That's well, a different story. Mm-hmm. And if you are the McDonald's guy that runs out and breaks it up, that's just become a more interesting character. Why did he break him up? Well, because he was an angry person and here's a chance to jump in the middle of a fight. Yeah, and that may be <laughs> it. It's maybe there's some violence they need to work out or maybe it's a personal morality that has nothing to do with any loyalty to McDonald's. They just have a personal morality by which they didn't want to see this unfold, whatever the case may be. And then, of course, what's the aftermath of that when they go back in? Does the boss turn around and cuss them out for giving the company a liability risk or, or whatever the case is? And there's going to be responses to that. I know we've kind of harped on this, but I think it is important to understand the context of why are they there? What keeps them there? So ultimately, I think the the advice then is, is that the minions, extras, hench persons, etc. have to have a defined role, a defined purpose. And it has to be significantly eclipsed by the role of the party. Yes, yeah. that's a big one there, is it has to be eclipsed by the role of the party. If at any point the henchmen make the party feel irrelevant, then the henchmen have become the story and the henchmen shouldn't be there. Yeah. So there's a game that I played at uh, a couple cons. It was one guy that was running it, ran uh, like multiple years of it. And he was running it, I think, Savage Worlds. But the bennies for the system, we named our bennies. That was something he asked. <laughs> We were, it was a game where we were playing, uh, I think we were Cobalt, mm. uh, but we we're small, little, nearly helpless. Uh, so each time you paid a Cobalt or paid a Benny, you had to kill a Cobalt? Yeah, you. we named them. So it wasn't just, you know, you're killing one. It's a, how did this individual person sacrifice themselves to give you a chance to reroll? Yeah. And it actually added a ton to the game because hmm. we came up with personalities for them. And it was a, when you're going to spend a Benny... Are you willing to sacrifice your in-joke that you've been making for the last half hour? (laughs) And sometimes the answer was no. And sometimes it was, I want to pay a Betty for him because I don't want little Timmy to run out there. (laughs) So basically the Benny and the NPC, you had this sort of sub game going on. Yes. That's That's cool. And it was something that, you know, the GM threw it out there as an idea and absolutely loved it. And uh, they did two years of that game. And we were trying to save individual bennies because <laughs> they were people. Like there was one, uh, the crazy scientist Cobalt that was making explosives. He had a uh, Benny that he named Morty. And he was playing him like Rick from Rick and Morty. Oh, sure. <laughs> and it's like we were doing everything we can. Morty had to survive. 
It's like we were all going through our bennies to make sure Morty would survive. And every time the GM was uh, mentioning something that they would do, he would go into the voice of Morty and <laughs> hashtag let Morty live. That oh, was probably the most fun I've had with true minions in a game where these are resources that were, you know, just throwing out there to be killed. But they had personalities, and it made it more fun. I think there's a reason why in most other mediums of storytelling, dare I say all other mediums of storytelling, the henchmen are effectively nameless and faceless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even when it gets to, like, City of Heroes, when we used to play that, well, City of Villains, the masterminds, most people would just throw their pets out and let them be destroyed. And the pets could be ninjas or robots or things. Right. But you could name them. And I would always play a mastermind. I had one mastermind that just didn't care. He was kind of a Joker-type character, and he would let his minions get killed off like crazy. Mm-hmm. Versus I had another one that was a robot mastermind, and I would do everything I could to keep my pets alive hmm. while I was playing it. And I think it's different kinds of characters. Just yeah. look at them different ways. Joker doesn't care if his henchmen you know, survive or not, but Rajal Ghul might care a little more about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, so think about like in The Dark Knight, when the Joker goes up to the penthouse party, to try and get Harvey Dent. Mm-hmm. And he ends up fighting with Rachel briefly, and then Batman comes in there and so on and so forth. I mean, he had, I mean, what, half a dozen dozen henchmen with him? Name any of them. <laughs> Name one of them. I mean, they don't have names. I, I mean, I can picture one of them because he was the one who said, uh, who called uh, Bruce Wayne a pretty boy before he knocked him out. But I mean, he got a whopping, what, one line? There was the one the Joker did the dosy do with before throwing him into Batman's fist. <laughs> you know, how many of these people had names? Any of them? I mean, maybe in the script they did, but if it didn't come out on screen. Right. I mean, the one in the ambulance did, but that was only to make the point of the fact of who he was, that he was some completely paranoid schizophrenic nobody. And they mm-hmm. gave him a name simply to make the point about his character of how insignificant of a human being he was. And, you know, that was his entire role. That's why he had the name. The moment you give a resource a name and it expects to be called by its name, it now has more importance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's where we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. Once again, please check the show notes for all the links to Fear the Con online, along with the promo video, the places you can sign up. Don't forget to keep watching Kickstarter if you back to the Fear of the Con 2020 Kickstarter for more information on that. And I don't think there's anything else I'm linked from the show. People but- should send their suggestions for Laura's conline game, right? Yeah, what she, sure. What she should run, maybe some ideas on what she should do. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> I mean, what are, the, what are the top three <laughs> systems you're most comfortable running? D&D 5th Ed. All right, 5e. Could probably run a Pathfinder game. Pathfinder, first or second Pathfinder? Uh, first, first edition. Round. Yeah, that's not uh, even a question. That, no, that's yeah. not even a question. Just like for some reason, D and D skipped from three five to five. It's very odd. <laughs> <laughs> there was no. All right, we got two. Blades in the dark. One shot. I could do blades in the dark. I don't know how you'd do that as a one shot, but I'd be comfortable enough running that. All right, there we go. So we need Pathfinder or five e, which those are. I mean interchangeable conceptually in terms of, I mean, mechanically they're different, but they're both fantasy D&D style games and then Blades in the Dark. Got it. (laughs) All right. So thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. Bye, guys. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2020. Listeners are free to use this episode in a non-commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. 
You can find previous episodes and other resources at heartheboot.com. If you wish to support this show and its related endeavors, you can do so at patreon.com/heartheboot.